0: 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 14. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The word of the Lord.
1: Help us to obey. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Uh, before I uh, begin, I just want to make one quick announcement, and that is, uh, I just learned today that um, Aaron and Peng, uh, you guys, want to stand up real quick, if you don't mind. They just got engaged uh, this weekend, so I just want to congratulate them. <laughs> All right, uh, so this is now the third sermon in a series of sermons I've been preaching on the letters of uh, John. And so far we've seen that in this first letter, there is this echo of the beginnings of the Gospel of John, reminding the church that Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God made flesh, and that it is this life, death, and resurrection that was witnessed and experienced by this community. And John makes this proclamation for three reasons. He says, So that we may have fellowship with God and with one another, so that our mutual joy might be made complete, and so that we may not sin. Because God is light, we cannot walk in sin and darkness. To do that would be to break fellowship and extinguish our mutual joy. John also knows, however, that we we do sin by our nature, even while we are walking in the light. And so God has provided a way for us to restore that fellowship and joy through forgiveness in Jesus Christ that is available to us as we confess our sins. And that brings us to our reading today. You'll notice here that John, <clears throat> and in John's letter, he doesn't try to make the kind of tight knit argument that Paul makes or that Paul likes to make typically in his letters. Rather, we get the impression that John is writing out a series of reminders of truths that the faith community already knows. He wants to reassure them that what they have heard and what they have heard from the beginning is true and that they ought to continue to walk in that truth. I think it was Robert Law who first pointed out that starting with verse 3, John offers what we can think of as three tests or three indicators of whether or not we know God. How can you know that you know God? I think that's an important question. For the Greeks in the classical age, they thought that God could be known philosophically without any ethical consequence. God could be known and solved as if God were some math equation that could be worked out in the mind and in the mind alone. By the time of Jesus, the Greeks became more interested in knowing God emotionally, and mystery religions flourished. They thought that union with the divine was possible and achieved through these ecstatic experiences and esoteric knowledge. And people, I think, today continue to seek these two avenues in seeking God. But John says, no. He says, that's not the way That is not the Christian way. Anyone can make a claim that they know God or that they've had a vision of God. How do we know if it's true? And how do we know if it's true of the true God? Anyone can make any number of claims. Uh, Recently, I've been uh, hearing a lot on the radio. Maybe it's because it's it's on my mind. But there's this one uh, commercial that's been on the radio a lot about how I don't need to exercise I can eat whatever I want and I can lose all the belly fat and have the energy of a young man if I just take their supplement. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? I want to believe that claim. I want it to be true. But I know it can't be because I know it defies everything I understand about life and about health. Anyone can make any sort of claim about anything. And people make claims about being a Christian. And John says, well, there are three ways you can determine whether or not someone really knows God or not. So Today, I want to take a look at the first two, and next week, we'll look at the third one. He says, first, we know that we have come to know God if we keep his commandments. You can tell someone knows God if they're keeping God's commandments. Obedience is the first test or the first marker of knowing God. Last week, John said, you know, if you deny that you have sinned, you're a liar. You make God a liar. And now he says, if you do not keep God's commandments and claim to know God, then you're also a liar. Obedience flows out of our knowledge of God. It is not a precondition for gaining knowledge of God now what's really of crucial importance in talking about knowing God is that knowing God is not a matter of gaining factual information about God as if God were some object to be known or studied for Christian, God is not an ideal to be pondered it is not some abstract notion of the highest good it is not some philosophical necessity to be acknowledged it is very possible for people to think deeply about God as a religious idea or a doctrine. You might know God in the way that someone might know a very famous painting. You're glad for that painting. You've studied it. You know it. You might even have moments of transcendence as you look upon that painting. But that is not what is meant by knowing God in the scriptures. Because that kind of knowing makes no demand on your life. It expects no change in your behavior And there's no compulsion toward obedience. To know God in the Christian sense is always relational. It is always relational. Recently, my wife saw a uh, medical specialist. Uh, She had mentioned her condition to her sister and her husband. And her husband said, I know a guy. I know a guy. I know someone who's really, really good. He did not mean that he had some information about a doctor that he had just Googled. He meant that he knows someone personally that he could recommend who was very good, whom he trusted, and whom he could call in for a favor to see her. It's that kind of personal knowing that the scriptures are talking about whenever it's talking about knowing God. It's not information. It's relational. And Jesus makes this connection between relationship and obedience explicit when he said in John 14:15, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." And again, John 14:21, "Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me." Obedience to the commandments of God demonstrates our love for God that is our relationship with God. It demonstrates our knowing God. In our culture, of course, obedience is not a popular word. We associate it with what we expect children to do or our dogs. Maybe it conjures up for you these sort of a a mindless adherence to some demagogue. Instead of obedience, we prefer infinite choice. We prefer unfettered freedom. You're not the boss of me. But it is through obedience... That genuine choice and freedom become possible. Think about something as simple as traffic laws. Imagine if everyone could drive however they wanted to drive. Imagine if everyone had complete freedom and choice to drive however they wanted to to do that. You don't have to get a license. You can go as fast as you want. There's no left side, right side. Red lights, green lights mean nothing. What would that be like in that kind of freedom? It would be absolute chaos and absolutely deadly. Those traffic laws are necessary and obedience to those laws makes it possible for us to drive and to live. Obedience to the commandments makes it possible for us to have the greater freedom of being able to live without the fear that such chaos would bring. It's the same in the Christian life. Soren Kierkegaard said this. People try to persuade us that the objections against Christianity spring from doubt. That is a complete misunderstanding. The objections against Christianity spring from insubordination, the dislike of obedience, rebellion against all authority. As a result, People have hitherto been beating the air in their struggle against objections because they have fought intellectually with doubt instead of fighting morally with rebellion. I think he's right. At least I know it's true in my life. Many of my doubts about the faith, about God, when I dig deep down, come from an unwillingness to obey God's word. Because they're hard. Sometimes they're hard. Purely intellectual doubts that I toss around in my head are just mental exercises. I might use them as an excuse to avoid dealing with my rebellion against God. When God calls me out through Scripture to point out my lack of love or gentleness or humility, or when the Spirit nudges me against my gluttony, envy, or apathy, I don't want to confess that and seek forgiveness with God and with others. Instead, I try to justify that, resolve it in my mind. So then what happens is I drift slowly away from God. And of course, then those doubts about God increase because I've drifted away and it reinforces that rebellion. The lie that I tell myself then is I have doubts about God, when in reality, it was simple rebellion, and an unwillingness to obey God's word. I lie to myself, thinking if I only knew more, then I might believe better. But it's really not my lack of knowledge or understanding. It's my lack of obedience. Some of the most challenging words Jesus ever said are in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you don't obey the will of the Father, the commandments of God, then Jesus will say, I never knew you. He's obviously not saying I never knew of your existence because he knows about the works of lawlessness. He's saying I never had a relationship with you because you never obeyed God's commands. And I think this is what John is getting at. We can only know and be known in a relational sense if we are obedient to God's commandments. When we obey, then we have this reassurance that we know God and are known by God. So that's the first test. The second is this: we know that we know God, that we are abiding in the light, that we are walking in the truth, that we are Christians if John says, we love our brothers and sisters. So the first test is one of obedience, and the second test is one of love. To know God is to obey God's commandments. And what are God's commandments? There are many, but it really just boils down to one. It is the commandment of love. Of this, there there should be no dispute whatsoever. When Jesus was asked very directly, what's the most important commandment? Jesus censored in Mark 12. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Love is the way to fulfill the law and all the commandments. So in a way, the two tests are one. We are to obey the commandments. And the commandment is to love. Paul writes in Romans 13.8, Owe to no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Love is the complete fulfillment of the law. It's so important that Jesus said, love is the only thing that will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It is the only thing that will identify you as my followers. It's not correct doctrine. It's love. John thirteen thirty five. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And what John is telling us here is that not only is love the only way that the world will know that we are Christians, it's the way that you can prove to yourself that you are a Christian. If you love, then you can have the reassurance that you are obeying God and that you know God. It took me a really long time to realize this. The remedy for doubts regarding your faith It's not more study. It's not more theology and apologetics, although that that can help. It's not trying to um, intellectually better grasp a solution to make faith more reasonable. The remedy for doubt is love. When you love, when you love others around you, you can know, you can know that you are walking in the light and that you know God. That's a truth that you can know regardless of what you may be feeling. As I understand it, and I'm pretty sure I don't really understand it, but as I understand it, a semiconductor is a substance that can act both as an insulator and as a conductor of electricity depending on changes in the temperature or the materials that are added to it. One such semiconductor is an element known as selenium. I know I'm walking on very thin ground here. (laughs) According to Wikipedia, (laughs) selenium transmits an electrical current proportional to the amount of light falling on its surface. What's interesting about selenium compared to the other semiconductors is that rather than uh, temperature dependence, its conductivity is dependent on light. In other words, when it's dark it acts as an insulator and when it's light, it acts as a conductor. And according to Wikipedia, the more light, the more conduction of electricity. Isn't that a good illustration of the Christian life? Right? When we walk in the dark, we are powerless. We cannot pass along. We cannot conduct God's power and love. But when we walk in the light, when we walk in the light, then we can be conduits of God's power and love. I think John is saying, you know, we're like selenium. We're like this semiconductor. Okay, you don't like that one. (laughs) He goes on to say that this commandment to love one another is both old and new. It's an old commandment because the call to love is there right from the beginning. It's in the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's there right from the beginning. But it's also a new commandment because in Jesus Christ, everything is made new. In Jesus, we are forgiven. We have a new position before God. The old has passed, the new has come, and Jesus has ushered in his new kingdom. And Jesus also demonstrates for us a new depth of love beyond what was commanded in the old law. He says to love not just our neighbors, the sons of our people, But he expanded that love to include Gentiles, sinners, and even our enemies. He made love far more inclusive and demanded a much higher level of love than what was commanded in the old law. And he proved this love by loving so deeply that he even gave his life on the cross. And this is why he told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. The newness is just as I have loved you. He demonstrates love by living that love. Now, as you know, sometimes it is very hard to love our brothers and sisters. It is hard to love enemies, of course. It is hard to love sinners, but it is sometimes more difficult to love. Our brothers and sisters. In Dostoevsky's classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Ivan, the intellectual atheist, says this I could never understand how one can love one's neighbors. It's just one's neighbors, to my mind, that one can't love, though one might love those at a distance. One can love one's neighbors in the abstract or even at a distance, but at close quarters, it's almost impossible. I think there's a lot of truth there. It's far easier to say that you love some, some nameless orphans in North Korea that you've never met, that you can send a gift to, than it is to love, concretely, your neighbor's loud and obnoxious kid that you have to see every day. It's far easier to love the world in the abstract than it is to love that coworker or that classmate that you just want to slap across the face. But this is the test. This is a singular identity marker of those who belong to God and to those who know God, those who are walking in the light. And sometimes I know in the church that the people in the church are sometimes the most difficult people to love. Sometimes it's the people closest to you that are the most difficult to love. But this is a test of those who are walking in the light. When you think of others, your brothers and sisters, are you thinking of them primarily as tools to be used, enemies to be beaten, nuisances to be avoided, as negligible to be ignored? Or are you thinking of them as brothers and sisters to be loved? I think this is why you need the church and why you need to come to church. This is why you need to be involved in a small group, a fellowship group, and to engage in ministry. It's so that love never becomes an abstract idea and always stays real. It's so that in loving, your faith is strengthened and restored I know that there are those people who think that they can be a Christian or a better Christian by being alone. That they don't want to be a part of a church, an institutional church, because they're full of hypocrites. I know that there are those who don't want to be part of a faith community um, because they think they can love or worship God on their own. And so they don't come to uh, Sunday worship, for example. That's a lie. That's an absolute lie. You cannot obey God's commands without being around people, and if you cannot obey God's command, then you do not know God. You cannot be a Christian by being alone. It's just—it's just, it's just a—you can't. They're—it's—they're it's, it's mutu- they're mutually exclusive. I know that there are some people who say, "Well, then I just want to be with good people, people who are my friends." who haven't disappointed me too much. There are others who have this sort of idealized sense of what a church community ought to be look like, looking for some sort of you know, utopian uh, community. Those are, again, just false idols that we erect about what it means to be part of a body. People look to avoid what is hard and painful and the people to whom we are called. And one of the reasons that you have to come to church is so you can practice loving your neighbors, so that you can practice loving sinners, and maybe even practice loving your enemies, because they're all here. They're all here. This is the way of fellowship. And, you know, I want to tell you, it's not because, the church is not because, you know, we're, we're all best friends. It's not a gathering of people that you like. And it's not that we even agree on everything, right? We don't agree on every theological doctrine, political policy, or cultural controversy. I know that some of you disagree with me on topics like infant baptism, women's ordination, about the meaning of communion, about the nature and use of charismatic gifts, about our denomination, and a host of other matters. That's okay. It really is. Because I am not going to define myself and we are not going to define ourselves as a people of God on those matters. When the world sees us, will they say, first of all, those folks love each other? Or would they see us and say, those folks have taken a position against this? When you see one another, is the dominant thought, I love you. That's the test. That's the test. Now, by this, I don't mean that you have to somehow make yourself you know, emotionally feel a certain way toward someone. What psychologists and counselors advise is the same thing that C.S. Lewis wrote about many years ago. He said, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act Act as if you do. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. I think that's a really important truth. Act as if you love them, regardless of how you are feeling. Instead of trying to generate a certain feeling towards someone, act as if you love them. When someone is sick and you bring them food and you sit with them and you pray with them, it doesn't matter how you feel about them. When you do that, you will come to love them. And they will know that you love them. And in that exchange, you will know that you know God, and your faith will be strengthened. This is one of the great benefits of engaging in ongoing ministry or going on a summer mission trip. When you're on a summer mission trip, you have this intense time where you're focused on doing concrete acts of love. As a result, you come back from these trips with your faith renewed, right? When people come back from summer mission trips, no one ever talks about, man, we had some really good Bible study. I learned so much theology. Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says that. Right? Because that's not what changed them. They're changed because they saw, they experienced, they practiced love in very concrete ways. So those are the two tests. That John gives to us. Now at this point. Maybe some of you are feeling a little anxious. Maybe the ideal of a test at all. Just frightens you a little bit. Maybe you're having doubts. Wondering. Am I really obeying God's commandments? Do I really love my sisters and brothers? And if I don't. Does that mean I'm not walking in the light? Does that mean that I don't know God? Is my salvation in jeopardy? I mean, You can get into that whole spiral downward. But I want to tell you that John isn't trying to scare you here about passing some test. He's writing to us to reassure us. He calls us little children, the entire church. He says, little children, your sins are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. The work of transformation and forgiveness is done by God. It's all by grace. And he's reminding us of that. He also reminds those who are mature in the faith. Fathers, you know him from the beginning. You've known him. You've walked with him. Pointing us back to our faith. And then he reminds those who are young in the faith. Young men, you are strong and you have overcome the evil one. And the word of God abides in you. This is the message we've had from the beginning. The message of forgiveness. The message of the gospel. To reassure us that we have life in Jesus Christ. You know this to be true. And you can be reassured of this truth. You can be reassured that you are walking in the light. That you know God. If you find yourself obeying God's commandment to love your brothers and your sisters. So let me challenge you this week to take a step into eternal life. I want to challenge you this week to commit yourself to an act of unprompted love, perhaps even an act of unprompted, costly love. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that if you do something because someone asks you to do it, somehow it's not appreciated as much. When my wife asks me to do the dishes, somehow it's not quite as satisfying to her as if I had done them without her asking me in the first place the dishes get done in the exact same manner. Or when she complains that I don't bring her flowers for Valentine's Day, and then I go and get her some, and she says it doesn't count because I was only doing it in response to her complaint. I'm not saying that happened recently. But there is something about an unprompted act of love, of service, that is better. Because it means you were thinking about them, right? It means that you were, you had that person in mind, that thoughtfulness that resulted in action as a sign of love. So, you know, when when people say things like, you know, you're in my thoughts and in my prayers, you know, that can be very meaningful to know that people are thinking of you and praying for you that, that can be very, very powerful. But it can also be meaningless. If you know that more could have been done, if you are in a position to have done more. So as you pray and as you think about the people in our church this week, I want to ask you to take one extra step and commit and act of unprompted love. Surprise someone and see how it encourages them and bolsters your own faith. Now, I realize telling you to do an unprompted act, I've just prompted you to do So, okay, but just go with me here. Just do that and encourage one another and bolster your own faith. In this life, we can never fully know God. For now, we see through a glass darkly. But until that day when we will know fully and be fully known, we can obey this commandment, this new commandment to love and have the reassurance that we will be fully known and that we know God. Let's pray together. Jesus said, this is eternal life. To know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is eternal life. God, help us to experience the eternal life now. To walk in eternal life today. To know you. To know Jesus Christ. By being obedient to your word. And loving one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I want to invite you all to the Lord's table. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the night of his betrayal and arrest, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this also in remembrance of me. For as long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim once again the saving death of our Savior until he comes again. And so in his name, I invite you.